Well, here we are at the eighth edition already of Blind Squirrel Macro, the pod. This is your Blind Squirrel speaking. This podcast is a companion to our weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, charts, memes, and a multitude of links that I might refer to in this pod. It also contains our portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trade ideas. This week, um, we're having a little bit of a programming shift. I'm actually recording this on a rainy Tuesday morning in Melbourne instead of the usual Monday morning. Um, It's still based on the feature article from yesterday's note, but I wanted to take the time to make the the pod a bit more standalone and incorporate some early feedback from the original note. Um, One thing that has not changed is that I still haven't yet mastered audio editing software, so I'm recording this in a single take, and so as ever, please forgive any stumbles I might make. This week we used the excuse of Amazon's antitrust case as a springboard into taking a look at the thorny topics of regulatory capture and regulatory arbitrage. This stuff is really important and I promise it's not as dry as it sounds. But anyway, before we start, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sake, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Talk to a financial advisor. So let's get to the main event, which I called Seeing Red Over Red Tape. Last week, we gave some thoughts as to how big government was getting bigger and that that was a fact that was actually not necessarily unpopular with the median voter. This past weekend, we were all encouraged to swoon with relief as US lawmakers narrowly managed to ensure that their government remained open for business come Monday morning. Those libertarians that were wishing for a sudden and involuntary zero government experiment will have to wait for their social experiment to occur another time. But I really do think that they should be careful what they wish for. Shutdown threats are sadly no longer an annual event. In fact, cliffhanger Senate vote fans will only have to wait another six weeks for the next one. This bill only ties us over until November the 17th. Anyway, judging from Friday's price action, equity markets appear to be as nonplussed about these political proceedings as Bill Murray at the start of another one of his Groundhog Days. Let's see how that comment ages, eh? At some stage, this stuff is going to matter. The mob market is certainly starting to look a bit fed up. 30 yields are up again um, over over the first 24 hours of this week. Hopefully in a non-nerdy way, I've been giving a lot of thought to the role of government and regulation in recent months. There's usually no shortage of hypocrisy as well as some really, really bad faith takes on this topic. Last week, I talked about how we might be entering an economic era that is supportive of labour over capital. In other words, the reverse of the status quo of the last 30 years. The fair regulation of corporations will play a major role in this regard. Away from the kabuki theatre of congressional budget negotiations last week, Federal Trade Commission Chair Lena Khan finally launched her much-anticipated antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. After her recent losses against Microsoft with her attempt to block the Activision video game merger and against Facebook, or should I say Meta, in her attempt to force the divestiture of WhatsApp and Instagram, this young firebrand of a regulator is hoping that third time's a charm in her latest big tech face-off. Sadly, the squirrel does not fancy her chances in court. 
Now, Silicon Valley seldom wastes an opportunity to rail against big government interference and regulatory capture in Washington. Yes, that would be the same Palo Alto crew that was screeching for a federal bailout of Silicon Valley Bank back in March. It turns out that that valiant crew of free marketeers are quite keen on the socialization of losses when their pet bank failed due to chronic treasury management failures at their portfolio companies. It also turns out that these occasional big government bashers also run a conference. Now, the squirrel would rather be, would need to be paid serious money to clamber into the arena with Scamath and join the all-in summit in person. And by the way, I'm not remotely worried about being called a mid by Mr. Palapataya. However, their conference last week, or maybe I think it was last month, in fact, contained a presentation from Benchmark Capital's Bill Gurley that is definitely worthy of further contemplation. It's available on YouTube and there's a link to it in, in, in this week's note. Gurley's presentation did an excellent job of highlighting the societal costs of regulatory capture by various industries. But for the sake of your blood pressure and probably your mental health, you may want to skip the wrap up with the besties section at the end of the presentation. Anyway, Gurley quotes the economist Jorg Stigler in his deck. He quotes, as a rule, regulation is acquired by the industry and is designed and operated primarily for its benefit. Now, I agree wholeheartedly with Bill and George Stigler that regulation is the friend of the incumbent. Gurley focuses in particular on regulatory capture in the telecom and healthcare sectors. Later in the presentation, he has a little and, and dare I say, slightly risque, given, it, given the company he was keeping, poker, social media, crypto and AI, when he correctly pointed out that Meta, Coinbase and OpenAI would love nothing more than a little bit of cosy regulation to cement their first mover incumbency. Anyway, Gurley's righteous indignation about community broadband, doctors, CRM software and COVID antigen tests is 100% justified. Regulatory capture has a habit of delivering harmful and expensive outcomes for consumers. There's a pretty famous infographic from The Economist's Our World in Data, which plots an international comparison of life expectancy versus health expenditure per capita. The US compares very unfavorably with countries that have, I dare I say, major government intervention in the healthcare sector. A quick note on this. My pal Kevin Muir has pointed out that some of my American readers will get very cross about this chart. I, I agree completely that some of the best medical facilities on the planet operate in the US. However, regulatory capture has destroyed the outcomes for the majority there. A cancer diagnosis remains the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the US, and that's not a great factoid. Guess what? Surprise, surprise, because they're never far away, the footprint of private equity is visible here as well. And it's not just a US phenomenon on that front. Private equity-sponsored roll-ups in the healthcare industry are one of the major villains of the piece here. It does feel as though the media and regulators are finally starting to get vocal on the topic. We touched on anaesthetists in Texas last week, but we came across this FT Alphaville piece the other day called When Granny Gets LBO'd. I think Alphaville's headline writers are simply the best in the industry. The article cites a report from the UK's British Medical Journal on the impact of private equity on healthcare, in this case, social care and nursing homes. I quote, across the outcome measures, 
PE ownership was most consistently associated with increases in cost to patients or payers. Additionally, PE ownership was associated with mixed to harmful impacts on quality. No consistently beneficial impacts of PE ownership were identified. Now that's pretty damning from an august body like the BMJ. Now one of the reasons that we've chosen to express our negative view on private asset markets via the PE industry's investment bank intermediaries, in our case Goldman Sachs, rather than the giant PE shops themselves, is that we feel that big PE, like big tech, is still very powerful in political circles. In the ever more populist world that we're expecting, we think that this view could change rapidly. A few more Granny Gets LBO'd headlines could easily paint a target on the front of big PE in the world of political discourse. But let's get back to our venture capitalist buddy, Mr. Gurley. Now, his first brush with the might of the telecom industry's corporate lobby was when one of his early investments, Tropos Networks, was seeking to disrupt, that's their favourite word in VC land, the community broadband market. Now, your squirrel is going to take a wild swing in the dark here and guess that the provision of free, massive use of air quotes there, Wi-Fi services to municipal city centres was a bit of a Trojan horse. I'd be prepared to bet that this was not an act of selfless philanthropy and that this service planned to come with plenty of hidden costs in the form of, at the very minimum, consumer data monetization. Never forget the words of the 1970s artist Richard Serra, it is the consumer who is consumed. You are the product of TV. You are delivered to the advertiser who is the customer. He consumes you. Now, in the context of Uber, DoorDash, and Instacart, we've written about the proliferation of what I call blitz-scaled e-commerce businesses that effectively sell dollar bills for 50 cents with a view to building monopolistic market positions from which rents can be sought from consumers down the line. At the end of the day, the monopolist sits at the apex of the pyramid of capitalism. These businesses and other gig economy players are also active in that wicked cousin of regulatory capture, regulatory arbitrage. By leveraging anachronistic legislation to skirt employment and minimum wage laws or local lodging regulation and taxes, it's really no different from regulatory capture. Also, in a digital economy filled with intangible assets, it's very clear that big tech is not shouldering its fair share of the corporation tax burden. And that's a global phenomenon. The problem with current antitrust legislation in the US and elsewhere is that dr the drafting focuses pretty much exclusively, exclusively on the monetary cost of a service or a good. It has not kept up with a modern world in which consumer preferences are swayed by algorithms and every second of our online attention is auctioned off to the highest bidder. I suspect that another reason that planet Palo Alto gets so worked up about regulatory capture comes down to money. The total addressable market obsessed great disruptors of Silicon Valley are looking at the vast regulated sectors of energy, healthcare, education, you name it, and dreaming of extracting rents from those sectors. Anyway, back to Amazon. The voices leaping to the company's defense focus on its position as a consumer champion, delivering the convenience of rapid delivery and driving down the cost of goods via its price comparison software. 
This fact completely ignores the retail giant's sources of re revenue from its stranglehold over logistics, web hosting, advertising, and other seller services. It also does not take into account its ability to compete directly with its seller customers. At the end of the day, the consumer ends up with less choice. Never forget that Amazon and its imitators in other sectors can charge whatever they want once there's no remaining competition. According to think tank ILSR, as Amazon has grown, the number of independent businesses has fallen. Between 2007 and 2017, the number of small retailers fell by 65,000 in the US. About 40% of the nation's small apparel, toy and sporting goods makers disappeared, along with about one-third of small book publishers. Next time you're on Google, search for Amazon Sales Tax Arbitrage. There are literally thousands of hours of YouTube videos that are dedicated to the topic of these strategies for power sellers on the Amazon site. So what? We get to that part of the, squirrel, um, of the story where you go, what's, what's, what's the angle here, squirrel? To be honest, I'm not sure that Lena Khan's trust-busting Hail Mary is going to come off. She may well be ahead of her time. In the investment business, to be early is also to be wrong. It's also probably too soon for trust-busting to hit the top of the populist politician's agenda. Her press release states that the FTC, along with its state partners, are seeking a permanent injunction in federal court that would prohibit Amazon from engaging in its unlawful conduct and pry loose Amazon's monopolistic control to restore competition. If it does come off, what does permanent injunction really mean for Amazon? A speeding ticket of a fine? Prime membership fee refunds? Maybe even a forced demerger of AWS, Amazon Web Services, or of its advertising services business? Which some might even determine as bullish for the Amazon stock price. I mean, who knows? Probably none of the above. Certainly one reason that Ms. Khan may lose that is that Amazon is still, after all this time, struggling to provide concrete evidence to the market of its monopolistic profits. Reuters Breaking Views put out a banger of a chart two weeks ago, which I tweeted out yesterday, plotting Amazon's cash flow multiple versus that of Walmart. In 10 years, Amazon has gone from trading at three times the premium to Walmart in, um, Walmart's multiple on an enterprise to EBITDA basis to, wait for it, parity today. If there's one thing worse than being accused of being a monopolist, that would be not making money from a monopoly. Regulatory action aside, the squirrel has never really been a fan of the stock. Frankly, it is nosebleed expensive, even now. Nosebleed being a technical term. My friend Stephen Clapham of Behind the Balance Sheet fame has written interestingly about the company's free cash flow. Um, and there's a link to that piece in the letter which is um, not behind a paywall and well worth a read. We agree that Amazon's aggressive use of capital leases greatly flatters its cash generation profile. The company is also a serial offender in the stock-based compensation ad-back game. Back in August, we wrote about Apple and its buyback-supported growth. Like Apple, Amazon is one of the small cohort of magnificent seven stocks propping up year-to-date equity returns at the index level. I should add that since publishing the Monday letter, Microsoft Satya Nadella had his day in court at the Google's antitrust case. I'm kind of in the if it quacks like a duck camp on Google's search monopoly position. To Google is a verb for heaven's sake. 
But what I thought was super interesting about Nadella's testimony yesterday is that he appeared to have clearly walked, be clearly walking back some of his artificial intelligent bullishness from earlier this year. Remember when he launched the chat GPT version of Bing back in February? Um, AI was the future of search. Um, now he thinks that Google is simply going to dominate AI-assisted search as well. So let's step back and think about the Magnificent Seven as a group. We've just discussed Apple and Amazon. Google is in an, is in an antitrust court. Does Microsoft's newfound AI premium look a little bit vulnerable after what Nadella just said? Surely it's just a matter of time before Meta's toxicity comes back into focus. NVIDIA is already priced as an AI chip monopolist, and Musk looks like he might be having a real issue with this, this DOJ and Southern District of New York criminal case. This is the group that appears to have run out of momentum in stock price terms in early June. Are they in a topping formation, or are they just building a base for the next phase of um, a rally into year-end? For today, the first day of the final day of the um, final, um, the first day of the final quarter of the year, it was it was this group. It was just this group that was up, and the rest of the market was down. In some cases, pretty hard, but one day does not make a trend. Apparently, Goldman was out with a, with another positive call on big tech. Big tech. There's been a consensus view developing whereby everyone thinks they're going to get the chance to buy the S&P 500 on a dip down to 4,200 and then surf the market back up to 4,600 by Christmas in a textbook Santa Claus rally. Guess what? That probably means that it's almost certainly not going to be the case. It strikes a squirrel that there are some major problems with all of the market's anchor stocks and there could be a reasonable chance that the market doesn't stop falling at 4,200. If the, four, if, the, if the fourth quarter get, doesn't go according to the game plan. Anyway, just a thought. So that's all we have this week on the pod. Um, in the written report, um, we also have a full Acorn review and portfolio update this week covering bonds, agricultural commodities, energy, tech IPOs, and of course, having another bash at private equity. Thank you very much for listening. Please, please find out more about The Squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Squirrel Macro, and please leave a rating or a review in your app. And I hope to catch you here again next week. Squirrel out.